Welcome to the Family of Grace Sermon for Sunday, February 16, 2020. In 1 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, a lot of sin is identified as our obvious solutions. Join us now as we consider why can't we resolve the same problems in our own lives today. going through this uh, series on 1 Corinthians, and uh, as I've been looking at chapter 4 and 5, it got me thinking about what is one of the greatest joys that I find in being a father. And uh, one of the greatest joys I find in being a father is uh, watching my kids imitate me and trying to do the things that I do. It's so much fun sometimes. Uh, so, for example, uh, a few years ago I started to get into fishing. And so there's this uh, one time where Caroline really wanted to go fishing with me. So she and I went and spent the day uh, fishing together. We probably had our poles in the water for maybe five minutes all day. But we were at Lacamas Park in Vancouver, and we just had a great time together because she wanted to fish, because I go fishing. Uh, Another example, Amanda caught this when we were at the T-Mobile store one time. <laughs> I love it. I'm just standing there, she just walks, and the, the both of us looking at each other and then back at home. <laughs> I love that she just wants to be like me and act like me, though, admittedly, that did cause me to uh, check my impatience a little bit <laughs> as I was standing there. Uh, or uh, there's this one. A few months ago, she decided that she was going to work on her sermon. And so she spent some time working on her sermon and then giving her sermon to Amanda and I. Uh, her sermon had, I don't know what passage it was from, but it had something to do with Jesus an octopus, and an owl. <laughs> I've been looking for the passage. I'm not entirely sure where it's at, but man, she had it figured out for me. Or uh, here, uh, one time I walked in on her looking at my Hebrew Bible. She's only about one and a half. She's looking through my Hebrew Bible, saying the two Hebrew words that she's picked up from me reading, and just saying them, Hashemayim and Lemor. And it's just hilarious that she just sees me doing things and wants to do them just like I do. And it doesn't matter that she hasn't mastered them. It's just a joy to watch her imitate me. And I love that she wants to do the things I do and share my hobbies with me. I love that she wants to act the way that I act. And I love that she wants to study the Bible and teach it the way I love to do those, those are the things that give me such great joy as a father. In the passage we're looking at uh, today, Paul has no such joy in the Corinthian church. <laughs> in fact, in the passage we looked at last week and this week, the fact of the matter is, they bear no family resemblance to we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5. And in 4, 15 through 17, it says, For though you may have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, because I became a father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
I encourage you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child of the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. I was saying to them, guys, we've talked about a bunch of things you guys have going on. We've talked about the fact that you guys have an upside-down view of what's wisdom and what's foolishness. We talked about the fact that you guys kind of are slandering me because I'm suffering in my life, whereas you guys have everything going well for you. And so you think that God approves of the way you're living. Guys, you have no idea what it looks like to live godly lives. I'm a few steps ahead of you. Follow my example. But it seems like you guys don't even remember what my example looks like, so I'm going to send you Timothy. He's my good kid. He'll show you what it looks like to follow my example, to be a member of the family. And then we come to today's passage. And he says, some of you are arrogant, as though I weren't coming to you. But I will come to you soon, as the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, and a spirit of gentleness? Basically, he's saying, guys, Daddy's coming home. And uh, I've heard that you guys have some attitude problems. You guys are arrogant. You think you're all that in a bag of chips. You think you're the best thing since sliced bread. And meanwhile, you guys got some issues going on also with your behavior. And the passage we're looking at today, and a number of passages afterwards, Paul's going to address some big problems they have going on in the ways they live their lives. And so he tells them, when I get there, what am I going to find? Because I'm going to give you some real clear instructions on how you're to live your lives. Are you going to follow my instruction? Are we going to have some good family time? Or is it going to be time for some discipline? Because I'm ready to love you in either way. But it's up to you to make a choice what this is going to look like. What kind of visit are we going to have? And so with that, we come up on chapter 5. And 5 verse 1, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Sexual immorality, we're talking about people who are living lives that are not following in God's idea of what sexuality is supposed to be. God says that sex is a gift given to a married man and woman. And it's a wonderful thing. But when it's taken out of that context, it's distorted. It's wrong. And Paul's saying, it's reported that there's this going on among you. And it's of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved 
people estimate that the problem is probably more prevalent in evangelical churches, but our lack of centralization makes it almost impossible to detect that, or to even produce a statistic on This is prevalent. It's pervasive. Some things that I found, it's tough reading looking at some research, but thousands of church leaders were found to have committed child sex crimes in the last decade. That's not thousands of people uh, accused. The number of accused is in the tens of thousands. That's thousands of people who have been convicted. But worse than that, of those hundreds are still working in churches with kids today. And that's because a lot of churches have diminished or hidden the problem rather than actually addressing it. And if right now, as we talk about this, and as we look at these things, if you feel angry and disgusted, good. I think that as we look at that, we should feel that way. And I think that it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what Paul's feeling as he's talking to the Corinthians here. And I think that as we look at that, if we think to ourselves, what would Paul say to us if he was writing this to us? I think that he would say, guys, you've got pervasive sin You've got pervasive sin of a kind that unbelievers are disgusted by. The entire world has looked on at this issue and has pointed the finger at the church, and rightly so. I think that Paul would tell us to work with authorities so that offenders can experience the consequences of their actions. And then maybe then they'll turn, they'll repent. I think he's, he would also tell us, you guys are proud of yourselves because you have such good theology. You're proud of yourselves because you have all these Bible studies, these programs, and yet so many of these things have gone unaddressed. You should weep. You should do something. This is a huge problem in the American church, and it's actually... It's something that we take very, very seriously. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, sometimes we don't have childcare every year. Because we find it incredibly important to guard and to protect our children. To make sure that nothing happens. Because this is such an important thing. I think that Paul's point here is that sin in the church should lead us to mourning and to righteous judgment. Again, that's not condemnation, but it's deciphering between one thing and another. Between an apple and an orange. Judging between uh, a, a lion and a zebra. Between someone who says they believe and someone who actually truly lives it. Paul goes on in the end of 6 and into 8. He says, Do you not know that a little leaven, or yeast, leavens the whole lump, lump of dough? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, 
but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's using yeast as a metaphor for sin. He's saying, a little bit permeates the whole loaf. All it takes is a little tiny bit. Uh, as I was thinking about this, uh, I got to thinking about how when I was in high school, someone gave me one of those things of Amish friendship bread. Anyone ever, anyone ever get that? Okay, so the way it works, someone gives you like this gallon-sized baggie with like a little bit of uh, uh, dough in it, and you're supposed to add all this stuff and like, shake it up and leave it on your counter for a month. Okay, and then after the month is over, you cut out a little piece, put it in a bag, and hand it off, and you bake the rest into your bread. I remember when I was in high school and someone gave it to me, I was like, man, that's kind of disgusting. <laughs> because, I mean, part of my bread could be like a year old. <laughs> no, 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 it's way worse than that, guys. It's way worse than that. In Canada, there's a woman with a 120-year-old sourdough starter. 120 years, her family has been making dough, taking a little piece of that dough, and making a new batch of dough off of that, taking a little piece, oh. making a new batch of that dough off that. So when you eat her bread, part of what you're eating could be like 120 years old. That's nasty. <laughs> but it gets worse than that. See, in San Francisco, there's places that do it for 160 years. But it gets worse than that. See. Last year, they found some yeast in an ancient Egyptian tomb that had been there for 4,500 years in that pot. And they made bread with it. Yeast is pervasive. It's hard to kill. It's hard to get rid of. It sticks around. But not only that, yeast is disgusting stuff. There was this brewer in Portland who uh, made beer, and he got a yeast infection in his beard. So he and his buddies decided, let's swab the beard. Take that yeast and make beer with it. His yeast infection became someone else's beverage. That is all sorts of nasty. Maybe... Maybe people will be swearing off beer after that, because that is just so gross. And that's the kind of thing Paul is saying. He's saying, guys, you got this stuff among you that's pervasive, that's hard to get rid of, that's disgusting. You need to cut it away. Throw it out. Paul's saying, guys, we need to remove the sin from among us and live righteously. And the reason we do that is because Jesus' sacrifice has made us new and righteous. He says, be an unleavened loaf, as you really are in <coughs> Jesus has done what it takes to cut the sin away from your life and get rid of it. Stop putting it back in! And when you find it, done this, guys. Be like Jesus. When you find it, get it gone. But 
goes on from there. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral people in this world, or the greedier swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, anyone who calls themselves a Christian. If he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, do not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? And there I think he's quoting the Corinthians. They're saying, well, what have I to do with judging them? He says, it's not for those inside the church. Or, well, is it not for those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It's like he's sitting there saying, like, oh, well, we're not supposed to judge anyone. And he's like, no, 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 no. Don't judge the people outside the church, but you have to judge those inside the church. Again, we're not talking about condemnation. We're talking about judging the difference between one thing and another. Between an apple and an orange. A lion and a zebra. Someone who says they believe in God and someone who actually does. Someone who lives it. So he says, it's not our job to judge non-believers. They're not going to live like Jesus. Because they don't believe in Jesus. They're acting exactly as we would expect them to. They don't say they're a lion. And so when they don't look like a lion, there's no reason. But if you say you're a lion, you better not be eating grass. Mm. It's not our job to judge non-believers. God will take care of them. They're in his court. And guess what? He is very competent. We can leave him to him. He'll take care of it. This is but it is our job to judge ourselves. And we are to judge ourselves by whether or not we actually live the way we think or we say we believe. Do we actually act that way? He says that we should do this individually and corporately. We're supposed to judge ourselves. We're supposed to judge ourselves. I think that it's interesting that as we look at this list, says not to associate anyone who practices sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a profiler, a drunkard, a swindler. Now he's not giving us an exhaustive list, guys. It's not like he's going like, oh, if you, if you make this list, but as long as you're not on this list, you're good to go. He's not giving us, us an exhaustive list. What he's actually doing, I think, is he's highlighting the ones that are most pertinent to the Corinthian church. Because as we've seen earlier in this passage, he's talking about sexual immorality. As we're going to see next week, he talks about greed and swindling among them as they wrong one another. As we see later on, they have an issue with idolatry and drunkenness. The question isn't, what sins can we get away with? The question is, is there sin among you? What are you doing about it? Are you removing 
that leaven from the world. Paul tells us that we should judge ourselves, but how? What does that look like? I think it's important for us to remember that in 4.14, he says, imitate me. Do what I do. And after he says, do what I do, he says, what do I do? I pass judgment on this guy. Judge one another righteously. Do what I do. Remove the old yeast. It's going to be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Do what I do. Pronounce judgment here. Remove sin from the love of And judge one another. Are not to judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. And the whole book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is actually giving right and righteous judgments about the Corinthian church. About what they're doing and how they're living. And I think that it's important to notice that this is a redemptive act. That Paul's not writing to them just saying, y'all are messed up, you're condemned, that's it. He's judging them so that they can turn and repent, so that they can know what's going on in them and change it, and instead follow Christ and follow the world. So 1 Corinthians 4, 18 through 5, the main point, I think, is that we must judge ourselves by whether we live in humble obedience to God's instruction or in arrogant rebellion. Are we going to be people who follow Jesus, who say we believe it and who demonstrate it with our actions? Or are we going to be people who, when confronted with our sin, are arrogant and say, no. Now, God approves of this. So if that's the case, then we have to judge between one thing and another. Between someone who really believes it and someone who just says they do it. So let's judge ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, do we have sin in our own lives? We're going to take some time when I'm done here, and we're going to spend some silent time really praying and thinking through these questions. I have sin in my life. God, would you reveal any sin in my life to me? And if we find that we do, we need to confess it. We need to cry out to God. To confess it to Him. To ask for His forgiveness. We can confess it to one another. Scripture tells us, confess your sins. <laughs> you may be healed. This is one of the ways that God wants us to worship Him. <coughs> we find the sin in our lives, we need to confess it, and we need to remove it. We need to get it gone. Uh, as I looked at this passage, it got me thinking about uh, a piece from C.S. Lewis' book uh, called The Great Divorce. And in that book, there are these people who get to go on a day trip to visit heaven. And they have the opportunity to stay. 
But as they come up in this bus, they find themselves getting increasingly ghostly because heaven is just so much more real than we could possibly imagine. There were ghosts by comparison. And so the main character is watching, and he sees a number of different interactions between these spirits in heaven and these visitors. And one of them that he watches is this ghost who has a little lizard on his shoulder. And that lizard kind of represents his sin, keeps speaking to him in his ear. Keeps speaking to him in his ear, bothering him. So finally, he's getting so irritated with this lizard that just keeps whispering to him. And he just turns around and starts walking back to the bus to leave. And the spirit approaches him and speaks to him. He says, off so soon? Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for the hospitality, but it's, it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, and here he indicated the wizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, this stuff won't do here, I realize that. But he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like to make me to make him quiet? said the flaming spirit, which I now understood to be an angel. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, uh, look out! You're burning me! Keep away, said the man. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to considering it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it, because up here it's just so embarrassing. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process will be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, um, I'll think of what we said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you do it now, but I'm not feeling very well today. And it'd be most silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for, health for the operation. Perhaps some other day. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back. You're hurting me. How could I tell you to kill you kill me if you did? It's not so. Why are you hurting me now? I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know, you think I'm a coward. But that isn't it. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus, and I'll get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. I know it will kill me. It won't. But supposing it did. You're right. It'd be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Last you go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, though the ghost. But he ended by whimpering, God help me. God help me. Guys, we tend to want to put off removing the sin from our lives. We come up with these excuses like, I'm getting better. I'm gradually getting better. Or, today's just not a good day. <coughs> We come up with all sorts of excuses for it. But in the end, Paul's saying we need to kill it when we find it. And we can't put it off. Um, there's this principle uh, in, uh, in psychology called the as-now-so-then principle. 
It says, as you do now, so you will do then. And so it's the reason why so many uh, uh, New Year's resolutions fail. Because people say, this next year, I'm going to do this. Sure you are. As you're doing right now, you're probably going to do the same thing again. So when people say, next month, I'm going to start doing this diet, or I'm going to start exercising, for most people, when they say, at this later date, I'm going to do this, most people just don't do it. Because if you're not actually willing to do it now, you probably never will be. <coughs> Guys, we need to commit ourselves to removing it when we find it. And not putting it off. So we need to ask if we have sin in our lives. We need to confess it and remove it. And we need to start with ourselves. You know, Jesus talks about judgment in Matthew chapter 7. And a lot of people want to stop with Matthew 7 verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Lots of people want to just shut the book right there, like, don't judge me. But Jesus doesn't actually just have ourselves in mind. He has something much bigger. He says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of self-test in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is not actually inwardly focused. It's not just about taking the, or the plank out of our own eye. It's about taking the plank out of our own eye so that we can also help our brothers to remove things in their eye. It's both. So we need to ask ourselves, do we have sin in our own lives? And then we need to ask that about our brothers and sisters. Because we call the series Regift. Because what we've been given, we are supposed to regift to others. And one of the things that we've been given is we've been given the Spirit of God to be able to make wise judgments. To tell the difference between an apple and an orange, a lion and a zebra. Someone who says they believe it and someone who really, truly does. And first we need to start by looking at ourselves and making that judgment about ourselves. And we need to re-give that to our brothers and sisters. And we need to ask, do we see sin in their lives that maybe they haven't noticed yet? And if so, we need to mourn over it. We need to pray for them. We need to ask that God, by His Spirit, would reveal it to them so that they can see what's going on in their own lives and so that they can repent and remove that sin in their lives. And we need to talk with them about it. Say, hey, do you really want to follow God to love? Are you really committed to knowing Him, to loving Him, to living like Him? They say, yeah, that's great. Ask, are we 
we really willing to do the hard things to change our lives so that we look more like Him? So that we actually obey Him and follow Him? sister and say, hey, I think God has been showing me this in your life. I just wanted to talk to you about it. It's graciously, humbly, help one another to look like Jesus. So let's take some time to do that now. Father God, we pray that your spirit would be working in us. That we would reflect your son that we would truly uh, be able to judge ourselves well and rightly, that we would know you well enough, that we can look at our lives and say, do we look like you? God, I pray that we would be humble, that we would be obedient as we follow you, as we love one another. Father, I pray that, uh, that Family of Grace would be a place that looks like you, that judges rightly, God, give us kindness, compassion for one another, and love to walk with one another as we seek to remove the things from us that make us not like you. Help us to really be the people who you have made us. The Family of Grace Fellowship is located at 12414 East Burnside, Portland, Oregon, 97233. We invite you to our weekly Sunday service at 1030 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at familyofgracepdx.org. Thank you for listening.